Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. series in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 19 through 25. We covered 1 through 18 last week, and we'll read 19 through 25 and cover it this week. And when you get to Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. And let's try something we tried a while back. Let's say thanks be to God whenever we hear the word read. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And Lord, we are guilty of not adhering to the warnings of your word and not adhering to um, those things that you have given us. Father, here we are, and we're in need of more mercy and more grace. And Father, your grace doesn't just cover our sin. Your grace gives us motivation to move away from sin. Your grace gives us empowerment to move away from sin. And so, Father, as this word exposes our sin, give us grace to lay it all at your feet and find repentance. We ask it all in your Son's name. Amen. You'll notice that the title of the sermon this morning is Rallying the Troops, and I thought that was an appropriate title, considering that our text this morning gives us a clear message about what Christ has done for us, and then lays out clearly what to do with what Christ has done. It's not like we just have this information and then we just sit on it. It has to do something for us, and then it has to do something through us. I'll say that again. It has to do something for us, and then it has to do something through us. The gospel isn't just words that come out of a preacher's mouth. It's a message that has power to save, power to sanctify, and power to fill you with the fullness of God. And so what we see in our text is the foundation of that gospel message. And that foundation is made up of the work of Christ. 
Christ has done the work of a high priest for us. We talked about that last week. His work gives us confidence, and that confidence allows us to hold to our confession and gather as a congregation before Christ every time we meet. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at our four points this morning. We're going to talk about our Christ, our confidence, our confession, and then finally, our congregation. Notice first verses 19 to 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And when I read these words, first of all, I think of the first verse of that old hymn, To God Be the Glory. To God be the glory, great things He hath done, so loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life in atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that we may go in. I think of that because the blood of Jesus, our Christ, has been poured out as a sacrifice, a sacrifice that we ourselves don't have to prepare, a sacrifice that we don't have to make. For God, this, for God Himself, this is a personal sacrifice because it involves the death of His only begotten Son. And what the beginning of verse 20 tells us is that this sacrifice has inaugurated or it has opened for us a new and living Way And I think that verse 20 is interesting. I think it's interesting that he uses the phrase new and living way. It doesn't just say that his blood made a way for us, but it made a new and living way. And when you think about a road or a path or a way somewhere, it doesn't have life generally. It's not animated. It's just, it's just a road. It's just pavement. But there's something special about this way to God. And what's special about it is that the way to God is Christ Himself. In John 14, 6, he says, Jesus says in, on no uncertain terms, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And that's why in verse 20, the preacher in Hebrews tells us that He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through His flesh. And don't, don't miss that last part. Don't miss that last part because that's important to how we understand our access to God. When Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 tells us that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. So that when the veil was torn, that signified that God was no longer to be accessed in the temple. Now we read that and we think that that's when God did away with the temple. God, we think that God did away with all this ceremonial stuff. We think God did away with a lot of the Old Testament practices. You know, we have a, we have a problem, I think, in, in evangelicalism, and it's this. It's, it's that whenever, we think, whenever someone asks us a question who might be, you know, investigating Christianity or whatever, they say, well, what about all that stuff in the Old Testament? And we say, and we're quick to correctly say, well, you know, when Jesus came along, he didn't abolish the law, but he fulfilled the law. Now, if someone were to ask you, okay, well, how did Christ fulfill the law? Our explanation of that would sound a lot like abolishing. And I think that's a problem. Because clearly, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. So it's not simply that God did away with all of the ceremonial stuff. 
It's that it changed. It's not so much that God did away with the temple. It's that there is a new temple. The new temple is the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul tells the church at Corinth, Do you not know that you yourselves are the temple of God and His Spirit dwells in you? Now, although that can apply individually, he's talking to them corporately. Altogether, they are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. God didn't do away with the temple. He made a new temple. God didn't do away with the sacrifices. His son is the sacrifice. God didn't do away with the high priest. His son is the high priest. God didn't do away with the priests who serve under the high priest. Revelation 1.6 says that we are kings and priests unto God. And it's that way whenever we think about the practice of circumcision too. God didn't do away with circumcision, he gave us a new circumcision. Baptism. Baptism replaces circumcision. It's why in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and really in the Reformed tradition that we baptize our infants. Circumcision was available to infants under the Old Covenant. Baptism is available to infants under the New Covenant. Because God didn't do away with circumcision, He gave us a new circumcision. And then finally, God didn't do away with the veil. You know, the big veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. God didn't do away with the veil. Whenever the veil was torn, it's not because there's no longer a mediator between us and God. It's because the flesh of Jesus Christ is now that veil. Anytime the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he always had to walk through the veil and he couldn't go any other way. That's why Jesus says in John 10, 7-8, that He is the gate and anyone who tries to come in any other way through him, than through Him is a thief and a robber. Christ is the veil between us and God. We cannot get to God on our own terms. We must go through Him. Charles Spurgeon, when preaching on this idea, he said, to the throne of God there could be no access except through a mediator. He stands, therefore, in the front of the throne between us and the invisible sovereign God. I cannot endure the sight of God until I see Him in Christ, and God cannot bear the sight of me until He sees me in Christ. And so... Jesus stands as the mediator between us and our holy, sovereign God. God loves us, so He sends Jesus as our mediator. Because we can't stand before God on our own. Our guilt is too great. Our sins are too numerous. We're too dirty and we're too filthy on our own. Our sins have to be washed away. Our sin has to be dealt with. Our filth has to be cleansed. And the only way that can happen is if we are in Christ. And so that is our Christ. And because of our Christ, we have our confidence. Look at verses 20, 21 and 22 in Hebrews 10. Look at the, listen to what the preacher says in Hebrews 10, 21 and 22. 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Now keep in mind the book of Hebrews. The reason I refer to the reason I refer to the book of, to the letter of Hebrews, the reason I say let's hear what the preacher says is because the book of Hebrews is not a letter like some of the other letters in the New Testament. It was actually a transcribed sermon. Now, we don't know who preached this sermon. More than likely it was the Apostle Paul. We don't know. But we know that someone in the early church preached this sermon and someone else sat there and transcribed every word that was being preached. And so the preacher in Hebrews is proving his point using all these Old Testament references and pictures. He's saying, do you remember this? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Do you know how it used to be done back then? Well, here it is now. It's a new and living way. And it all makes sense. It all makes sense if you know what happened back there. It all fits together like pieces in a puzzle. And so listen to what he says again. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. There's the confidence. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. All throughout the New Testament, there are indicative statements followed by imperative statements. An indicative statement is simply a statement of truth. It's simply a statement of truth. An imperative statement is what we can do with that truth, or what we have to do with that truth. And so this is, this is a pattern all throughout the New Testament. If someone's writing a letter or preaching a sermon, there is often an, an indicative statement. They'll say, well, this is true. This is what Christ has done for us. Then that is followed up by an imperative statement of what we must do in response to that. Because it's not just truth that sits there and does nothing. It has to do something through us. And so what the text is saying is that since this has been done for us, since Christ has done the work of a high priest for us, let's do this in response. The indicative statement in this text is that we have a high priest over the house of God. That's a statement of fact. Jesus is our high priest. But as I mentioned earlier, this isn't just a piece of information. This isn't just a fun fact. It's a truth that we must respond to. And the preacher in Hebrews gives us three ways to respond to this truth about Jesus. He first says in verse 22, well if this is true, he says in verse 22, let us draw near with full assurance. Then in verse 23 he says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope. Then in verse 24, he says, let us consider one another. And so what I want us to do is, is look at each, each of these three let us statements, one at a time. And I want us to see how we should respond to this truth about who Jesus is. Notice verse 22 again, let us draw near. Well, how should we draw near? What's the manner in which we should draw near? Let us draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith. It's not God's will for you to live in uncertainty concerning your salvation. That's why, that's why John writes in 1 John 5.13. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe 
in the name of the Son of God. You can draw near to the throne of God with confidence, knowing that Jesus has created access to God the Father in Himself. Now think about that for a minute. Jesus has created access to God. On Monday nights, my wife and I, we go to Wesley United Methodist Church for Bible study and discussion group. And the women have their Bible study at 6.30 and then the men have their discussion group at 7. So usually I'm the first one to, I'm the first of the men to get there because Brittany and I to go together. Well, I was sitting in, in, in a Sunday school room where we meet and it was just me there, and I thought, man, I'm thirsty. I'll get up and go get a glass of water. So I got up, went to the kitchen, got a glass of water, and about halfway down the hallway, I thought, well, what am I doing? This isn't my house. This isn't even my church. Why do I think I can just get up and get a glass of water out of their kitchen? It's because I've known the people of that church there for seven years. We've had meals there we played board games there. We've been to Bible studies and services there. My best friend was married there. My wife and I aren't even members there, but every time we're there, we feel like we're home. So whenever I walk next door to my grandparents' house, it's nothing for me to walk in there and raid their fridge if I feel like having something to eat. Why? Because I have access. So when I walked down the hallway at Wesley United Methodist Church and went into the kitchen and poured myself a glass of water and I went back to the Sunday school room. Why? Because I had access. And you know what? You have access. And you have access to something far greater than our kitchen. You have access. Because you have access, you can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Do you know why you can have that full assurance of faith? Look again at verse, verse 22. This time notice the last half of the verse. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We can, come to, we can come in full assurance of faith because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed in pure water. This is ceremonial language that reflects the way that artifacts in the temple were cleansed through the sprinkling of water. And it's also a reference to baptism. Notice what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which He also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient. When God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Don't look at me funny, I'm just reading what the Bible says. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as the pledge of a good conscience. Notice the, notice the parallel. Peter's talking about having a good conscience toward God. Hebrews just told us, that we are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. 
Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Christ. According to what we just read before that in Hebrews 10.22, how are we able to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith? It's because our hearts have been cleansed from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water. God gives us the gift of repentance to cleanse our hearts and He gives us the gift of baptism to show us what that cleansing looks like. I think part of our problem is that we don't think of baptism as a gift enough. We think of it as a work. We think of it as something that we do. But the fact is, baptism is not something we do. It's a gift that God gives us. And so people get caught up on this a lot. Because they'll say, well, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says we're saved by grace through faith. And then we just read 1 Peter 3, 21. Peter says baptism now saves you. Well, which is it? Which is it? Yes! It's, and here's why the answer is yes. It's because the thing that whatever God gives you as a gift, it's not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. It's a gift. It's, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve to be cleansed. You don't deserve to belong in God's covenant. You didn't earn it. And yet He graciously poured it out on you. Peter Lightheart. Peter Lightheart says this. He says very clearly in his book on baptism, a guide, from, a guide to life from death. He says, Baptism points to Jesus who rose from the dead as the first fruits of, of the age to come. As it points to Jesus, baptism tells the world, Behold, a new creation has come. To the baptized, it is a performative speech affecting what it declares. Behold, you are a new creation. As more and more are baptized, baptism formed the church. And as the locus of a new creation is life in a dead world. As more and more are baptized, baptism forms the church as the locus of new creation life in a dead world. So the promise of new life in Christ washes and cleanses our entire being, our entire being body, soul, and spirit. I'll say that again. The promise of new life in Christ washes and cleanses our entire being, body, soul, and spirit. The spirit is washed in regeneration when we're born again. The soul is continually washed in the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in our life. The body is washed in baptism and will be finally and fully cleansed in glorification when we die and we are welcomed into the presence of Christ. See, we simply think of salvation as something that's entirely spiritual. But Jesus died for all of you. I'll say that again. We simply think of salvation that's something that's just entirely spiritual. But the truth is, Jesus died for all of you. Jesus died for your body, for your soul, and for your spirit. And so salvation can't simply be spiritual. It has to be physical, it has to be mental, and it has to be emotional as well as spiritual. That's why we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because salvation is for the whole person, and because we have received a complete gift in our salvation, we can have confidence before God. And so that's our confidence. But what about our confession? Look at verse 23. 
Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. This is the second of the three let us statements in this text, and it has to do with our confession of our hope. Not simply our confession of hope, but our grip on our confession. Now this is where things get a little tricky, because sometimes certain Bible translations uses the word profession instead of confession. And they'll say, well, let us hold to our profession instead of let us hold to our confession. And it's really not a big deal because the Greek word here can mean profession as well as confession. So it's not a wrong translation either way. But for us English speakers, there is a little bit of a difference between a profession and a confession. If you commit a crime and the cops take you in and interrogate you, what they want from you is a confession. A confession is when something is true and you're just agreeing with whatever it is that's true. If you stole a car, then it's a fact that you stole a car, whether anyone can prove it or whether there's any evidence to, to convict you. Even if you have the slickest lawyer that can argue in court that you didn't do it and you, got it and you get away with it, nothing changes the fact that you actually stole the car. Now, what the police would want is for you to acknowledge what the truth is. They want you to agree with what they already know, or at least what they suspect to be true. So when the writer of Hebrews says, let us hold fast to our confession of our hope, he's saying that we boldly make a declaration of what's true. We can loudly and proudly agree with the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. And it's not just any confession. The preacher calls it a confession of our hope. In our society, folks use the word hope to describe something that's just kind of up in the air. You know, I hope I win the lottery. I certainly hope I win the lottery, Kevin. I hope my car doesn't break down on the highway. I hope this, I hope this. I, I hope for that promotion at work. We use the word hope to describe things that we cannot guarantee. However, the Bible never talks about hope in those terms. Our confession isn't based on an uncertain pie-in-the-sky worldly hope. Our hope is certain. Our hope is fact. Our hope is based on something that tangibly happened whenever Jesus Christ physically died and then physically rose from the dead. In His death, He placed His blood on the mercy seat before God, and in His resurrection, He goes to the Father to advocate and intercede for those who will claim that blood. That actually happened. I was reading. I've been reading R.C. Sproul's biography this week. Um, he passed away in 2017. He was a scholar, a theologian, a pastor. He was very adamant about the, about the authority of Scripture. But he grew up in a liberal uh, Presbyterian church. And so he was, he was taught basically by someone who didn't really believe in the authority of Scripture. He was taught by someone who uh, was basically a humanist. And R.C. Sproul grew up and he went off to Bible college and while he was at I think he went off to Bible college. I th no, he, it wasn't a Bible college because he went there on a football scholarship. While he was at college, he encountered this Bible study group. That's what it was. He encountered this Bible study group. He started going to Bible study. And 
it, and it, he was college age, like he was in his late teens, early 20s, before he ever really studied the Bible because he went to a church that really just didn't believe in the authority of Scripture. And so he's studying the Bible. And he's learning all these things he didn't know before. And so he goes back home to visit his parents, and he goes and visits the pastor of this church that he grew up in. And he goes in the pastor's office, and they're having a conversation, and R.C. Sproul tells, tells him, he says, he, he says, I'm learning all this stuff about the Bible, and he says, I'm learning all of these things. And, and he, he finally asks the pastor, he says, he says, you know, I realize now that you've not been teaching the truth. He says, I realize now that, because basically what R.C. was taught as a kid, that when Jesus rose, what that meant is that you could have new hope for the day, right? It, it, was, it was just something abstract. It wasn't personal. It wasn't historical. And that pastor looked at him and said, Sproul, if you really believe Jesus rose from the dead, you're a fool. And people wonder, people wonder why we're so, people wonder why we're so inflamed against the liberalism going on in our denomination. Because that's where it leads. That's the direct result of passing on the authority of Scripture. That's the direct result of that's the direct result of liberalism within our within our seminary, within our presbyteries, within our pulpits. It leads you down that road. And so here's the thing. If Jesus never rose from the dead, none of it matters. That's why the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. I was reading Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell's an old, old uh, Cumberland Presbyterian theologian. His, him and his son both worked in, in the Arkansas Presbytery for many years. Uh, Thomas Campbell Sr. He were he was here pastoring churches back when it was the White River Presbytery. I'm sure some of y'all remember those days. And he wrote a book. Uh, I posted about it on Facebook yesterday, called Winds of Doctrine. He wrote a book called Winds of Doctrine. And he basically just wrote about his experience with all these different types of, of teaching going on in the church at that time. And it was amazing reading that book and to find that not a lot has changed within the last 70 years. People are still teaching the same wrong ideas about God that they always have. And preachers who, who actually believe the Bible are still trying to correct those issues from the authority of Scripture. Thomas Campbell wrote about his Thomas Campbell wrote about his experience with progressive theology. I don't think he called it progressive theology. I think it went under another name at that time, like liberal theology or something like that. But he wrote about his encounter with progressive liberal theology and about how it wasn't for him because liberal theology, just like it was then, just like it is now, seemed to be all about what you don't believe in. He encountered these groups of people who claimed to be highly educated. They came out of allegedly the best seminaries. And they didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. They didn't believe in the authority of Scripture. They didn't believe this, this, and that. And it, it became all about what you don't believe in instead of what you do. 
And what was really interesting about that book is that Thomas Campbell found that there was an opposite problem in the fundamental camp. Because remember, back in the 40s, there was, a, there was what they called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Modernism arose, and they were saying things like, you know, we don't believe in the resurrection of Christ or anything like this. But then fundamentalism rose as a reaction to that. But the problem is that fundamentalism also became known as a movement that was just defined by what they didn't believe in. There was no clear positive stance until evangelicalism came along out of the two. And that's, when, and that's as you know, when Billy Graham got his start. Billy Graham headed up the evangelical movement. There's a really interesting video. We might watch it sometime in Bible study. There's a really interesting video from Phil Vischer where he talks about the history of the fundamentalist modernist controversy and evangelicalism and how all of that relates to what we see going on in the world today. Man, I got way off my sermon. <laughs> Let's bring it back. So, our hope is based on something that tangibly happened. Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. He physically, he physically died. He physically rose from the dead. And He placed His blood on the mercy seat before God. And so whenever we confess our faith, whenever we confess our faith, we own up to the fact that this is a reality for those who will trust in Christ. And that's why we have to hold on to that confession. Because when we let go of our confession, we surrender ourselves over to the very darkness, depravity, and destruction that Jesus died to save us from. And so to summarize, we've seen our Christ, our confidence, and our confession. Now let's see how this relates to our congregation. Here's the third and the final let us statement in the passage in Hebrews 10, 24-25. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so I want us to think about these verses in this way. We gather together week after week because we need each other in order to know how to love and act toward our neighbor. I need you and you need me. Deal with it. We need each other so that we can be better together. Coming to church on Sunday morning isn't just some social club meeting. It's a necessity of the highest order for the believer because we need one another. J. Vernon McGee said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't remember the exact quote. J. Vernon McGee said that the reason we gather together for worship is because God has something to give us as a group that He will not give to an individual. Many people will say, well, my church is just the deer stand. My church is out on the lake. You can encounter God in those situations. But many people who say that don't think about God in the slightest and they just use it as an excuse not to come to church. And while God may meet you in those situations, He will not meet you the same way that He meets with His people in His house on His day, week after week. God has something to give a corporate entity that He will not give to an individual. You can and you should worship God privately. But your private worship should not be at the exclusion of your corporate worship. Here's what, our, here's what our very own Confession of Faith says in chapter 5, section 15. The Cumberland Presbyterian Confession of Faith. God is to be worshipped both corporately and privately. 
Corporate worship is practiced in the gathered congregation, in small groups within the church, and in larger gatherings of believers. Private worship through, through mediation is through, or I'm not mediation, private worship is through meditation, prayer, and study of the scriptures. And is practiced in various settings, especially in the home, by individuals, and by the family. Back in verse 25 of Hebrews 10, the Greek word for gather, where it says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves, not to forsake the gathering of yourselves, the Greek word for gather is ekklesia. And that's interesting because many times the Bible will often translate the word ekklesia into the word church. And so when the passage says to not forsake or not neglect the gathering together, it's literally saying don't stop churching together. Don't stop churching together. It's using church as a verb instead of a noun. Church isn't just who you are, it's what you do. More so, it's what you do when you're together. Don't ever let anyone ever discredit or downgrade the importance of the body of Christ meeting together to worship God as a family. This is the place where we gather to get fed with the word and sacraments for the week. We need this. You need this. I need this. And we are needy people. And Christ is the only one that can meet our need. We mentioned that baptism is a gift earlier. How are you baptized? You're baptized through the church. Someone has to baptize you. You don't baptize yourself. The church teaches you your need for baptism. The church brings you through the waters of baptism. The church feeds you with the meal that Christ has provided in the Lord's Supper. The church is a gift to us. And when Christ gives us a gift, we should never turn it away. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. Lord, let us never neglect the means of grace that you have provided for us. Lord, though we use the term ordinary means of grace, we do so because, not simply because they are ordinary is the way we think about that word, but they're ordinary because we can see it. We can tangibly touch the bread and the wine on the table. We can feel the waters of baptism on our body. And Lord, as we remember our baptism this morning, I pray that you would remind us of your gift to us. I pray you would remind us of the gift of our salvation that comes through Christ. I pray that you would remind us of the gift of the church, your body. I pray, Father, that you would deepen our relationship with you. I pray, God, that you would deepen our need for you. Let us feel that we have a yearning and that we have a need that only you can satisfy. And let us turn to you in faith. Father, let this word soak into our bones and let it seep into our souls so that we would leave here understanding the gifts that you have given us. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let's sing.
you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.